but also giving these um, pronouncements of woe, these promises of swift judgment on the Chaldeans. So rather, you know, we, we saw that Habakkuk sort of uh, prepared himself to receive a rebuke, and instead of, instead of being rebuked, God's given him these uh, uh, reassurance that God is indeed in control, and that He is indeed securing the life of the faithful. And we've seen um, these five pronouncements of woes in which the mockers themselves are to be mocked. So let me begin reading um, in verse 18 of chapter 2, and then I'll read the entirety of chapter 3 as well, even though we probably won't make it all the way through, but just to give us a little context. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And now chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigonoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Salah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and a plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Salah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors, his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. 
I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Now last week, um, you know, foolish me, I was trying to hurry through chapter 2. And as I was working on this this week, I was really glad I didn't finish chapter 2. And and we'll talk about that some, hopefully, in a little bit. But I want to start with um, verses 18 through 20 of chapter 2. And take a minute to glance back um, at these previous four woes. So in verse uh, six, is, 6 through 8, we get the first one, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Um, the second one in verse 9 through 11, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verses 12 through 14, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And then 15 through 17, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now look at our fifth woe in verses 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So, how is, the, how is this fifth pronouncement of woe different than the, the first four? What are some of the ways this, this final woe is different? Yeah, he, he instead of starting it with the woe, he, he starts into um, this condemnation of the thing that he's pronouncing woe again and then gets to the woe. So it's a different format. He sticks the woe in the middle there rather than starting the section off with the pronouncement of woe. So the format itself is different. Other things that you notice um, that are different about this particular woe. So it's in a different format. He doesn't start with woe. He sticks the woe in the middle. Yeah, this one focuses on that offense of these people against God, where, uh, as you rightly say, the other ones are this... uh, condemnation of inhumanity 
of violence against of, of, of mankind against mankind and even man um, as Andy had pointed out last week the, that God's concerned with the violence that's being done to the earth with, to, the, to the animals and trees of Lebanon so we've had uh, this condemnation of all this earthly um, atrocity but now we're getting um, the emphasis turned to the offense of these people to, to God with this emphasis on idolatry. So why, why use a different form and why sort of culminate this projection of woes with idolatry? Why save this one for last and why present it in a different form? Yeah, it's a way of placing emphasis. Just like putting something first is a way of of saying, you know, this is the first commandment. Everything else flows from this. Um, Putting this last is a way of emphasizing, especially putting it last and using a different format. It calls attention to it. It's a way of, of making it stand out, that we pay attention and notice. So it's this, uh, a way of, of bringing importance to this offense of idolatry. Other reasons you think he might put this one last. Bill. Well, I think this, this, this is the ultimate thing Yeah, it's an affront to God, and as you say, it's the the source of all their other problems. Um, uh, it's it's this way they um, have created these these gods that cannot speak or direct them, and worship them and all their other problems come from that act they have no you know notice how the emphasis is on these gods being mute they can't speak therefore they cannot give direction to what's right and wrong if we look back to earlier in Habakkuk we saw um, in this description of the Chaldeans the fact that their their justice and dignity go forth from themselves they're a law unto themselves because they have no divine guidance they have no access to uh, the righteous standards of God so they create their own standards so because that vertical relationship between them and their makers uh, is is not right, their relationships with other humanity is not going to be right. Mary. They're, they're silent. What do they have to instruct? Um, what good are you going to get out of out of these things that are made? They're mute. They cannot teach you. They cannot give instruction in the way of life. Um, and you know, we saw in the beginning of this pronouncement of woes, we saw that um, depiction of this life of humbly acknowledging. 
the sovereignty of God is the gives life to the faithful, whereas the arrogant suffer death. And here we have these arrogant who've created their own gods and therefore don't have access to that path of life. But I know it's a contrast here, but the false gods are silent for people, and then in verse 20 it says the Lord is in the Holy yeah, isn't that uh, the irony sort of built into that? We have these, you know, they've created gods that cannot speak. And when we come into the presence of the, the living God in his temple, we're the ones that need to be silent. You know, they've created gods that can't speak, so they speak for themselves. Um, you know, again, this to go back to the beginning of these woes uh, with this description of the arrogant. You know, they take the, the prerogatives of God upon themselves. But when you come into the presence of, of the Lord, uh, Yahweh, in His holy temple, then all the earth needs to be silent. Alicia. And we see that a lot with the, you know, to think of Job, you know, the same sort of same response, you know, bringing complaints, you get God's answer, and the response is, (laughs) okay. Um, yeah, it, it, it is this culminating point of when faced um, with faced with the presence of God and seeing, getting a glimpse as Habakkuk's doing of what God's going to be doing. Um, the response is um, is silence. But as we'll notice, um, that silence gives gives um, occasion for praise. So it's not um, just complete, okay, we don't have anything. Habakkuk doesn't have anything to say in response. He's got a whole other chapter of him doing some, some talking. But it's that um, just sort of in the same way you know, our elders enjoin us to silence when we come into worship. You know, and then we break forth in song. Um, it's sort of the same, we're getting the same picture here in Habakkuk. It's the way this verse is setting us up for chapter 3. And I think, which is again why I'm glad I didn't rush through and do this section last week. Because 2 and 3, I think, are, are we see that connection, that link through these three verses. And I, I'm emphasizing this because a lot of um, higher critical scholars say chapter 3 doesn't belong to the book. That it's a later tacked on um, song to this book, that the two things don't mesh, they're not fitted. You know, um, in chapter 3, we get a hymn of praise. This is the only time in any of the prophetic literature a, a prophet breaks out into a song of praise. Now, we get other songs in the prophets, but almost always they're lamentations. 
uh, laments or songs, you know, funerary dirges. But here we have the prophet breaking out into a song of praise. So some people have said, yep, see, here's signs, taking two different things, tack them together. There's no connection. But I, I think um, they, by connecting two and three and seeing that Habakkuk has placed us silent in the temple or silent before the presence of God in his temple, well, what do you do in the temple? You worship. You praise. Um, you, you bring forth your you offer sacrifices to the living God. This is where the act of worship's conducted. And so it makes sense that chapter three begins and we have this celebratory song of praise. And notice um, just to sort of um, to emphasize this point, notice that we have several elements that are only found in the Psalms. So, for example, um, three times we have that word Salah. This is Habakkuk's the only time outside the book of Psalms that we have this word appear. And it's a, we don't know exactly what it is. It's a musical term, uh, instruction to how this is to be sung. Uh, a lot of people think that it's, it's a place that um, a pause is. So, you know, you hit Salah, that's a point you're supposed to pause there. Maybe have a little musical interlude, you know, before you move on. All that's hypothesis because we don't know what these um, instructions are. Uh, Another instructions in verse 1, according to the, the word that I cannot pronounce, shigionoth. Um, again, we don't know what that word means, but the only other place it appears is in the Psalms. So um, Psalm 7 is, is one place where we see that, that same term. And so, and in Psalm 7, it's the same case. It, it seems to be a sort of musical instruction. And then at the very end of the chapter, we have this instruction to the choir master with stringed instruments. So giving specific directions on how this is to be sung. So he's giving us a psalm intended for corporate worship. This is a celebratory song of praise composed for the worshiping community of Israel. It's not just meant to be... um, uh, you know, words that are, are, are studied and reveal truth. These are words that are meant to be sung. So his prayer that he gives us in chapter 3 is a psalm. And notice how he starts that. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to, again, the word I cannot pronounce, Shigionoth. Uh, it, we get that in other places in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 17, if we flip there real quick. So here we have a psalm. This is a psalm of David, but notice how it begins. It's a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Uh, Another example would be Psalm 86. Uh, Here again, another, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. So there are several psalms that um, start with this label of being a prayer. 
And notice, so it's a prayer. He's put a label on this particular psalm. And notice the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Again, we see that Habakkuk is enjoining that label of prophet upon himself. And again, to think of, of what the prophet is, uh, his position, his position being that mediator between God and the people, between the people and God. And part of that job as being uh, the intercessor for the people is to help lead them in the praise of their God. So I, I don't buy the whole, this doesn't fit the, the book. I think it fits the book. Precisely, and as we see the themes of this particular psalm work out, um, I think we'll see that the themes of the psalm also fit the rest of the book. So enough of higher biblical criticism for this morning. <laughs> Let's look at... Um, So with that aside, I think it fits the rest of the book. I see the connection coming out of of the end of chapter 2. We have the Lord in his holy temple, and now it makes sense in chapter 3 that Habakkuk's response to God's response would be to launch into uh, a song of praise. So let's jump in, and we have sort of the prologue to the psalm in verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So right in the center of this verse, we have repeated twice this phrase, in the midst of the years. When are in the midst of the years? Okay, one option. These are the years of exile. I mean, again, this is what we do. We put out, all right, what could it be? So it could be in the midst of the years of exile. What else might it be? In the midst of years of conflict. Okay, so in, in it, we've seen all this prophecy of a coming uh, conflict. So in the middle of that, other options? What are in the midst of the years? Mike. This is what we're taking. We're taking stabs in the dark. <laughs> Yeah, it could be uh, everything between now and the culmination of human history when we have the second coming of Christ. Um, it could be that between now and the, and the first coming of Christ. Calvin actually thinks it means um, the time in between Abraham and the coming of Christ. He thinks that that's the, in the midst of the years. So that's, we've got... Um, Notice we've sort of got, we've expanded the scope. We've got sort of um, a narrow in the midst of the years, in the midst of, uh, of this exile that's coming, in the midst of this coming conflict. Then we get a little bigger, so Calvin says, in the midst of Abraham to Christ. And then Mike's brought us a little bigger, you know, in the middle of human history. Um, 
between what God's creation and God's culmination with the second coming of the Son, Christ. Um, so, we've got lots of middles. Yes, we're, we're camping in verse 2 for a moment. Yeah. What did you say, Kathy? So, yeah, so it's um, the emphasis there being on this being in... um, in the midst of his experience, his days. And I think, you know, as we think about it, I think we do need to apply it to that immediate context of, well, what, what have we had described in the first two chapters of the book? The destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians that, have, that caused the problem that this is going to happen. And then God's answer, the destruction of the Babylonians and the restoration of his people. So we've sort of given to, to go back to Mike's sort of emphasis on the exile or the, the, the conflict, we've been given two very um, specific destructions, the destruction of the southern kingdom and the destruction of the destroyer of the southern kingdom. Um, so giving us bookends. So in the middle of this experience, as Israel lives through this, then... This could be in the midst of the years, in the midst of our days. But I think we can, as we'll see, um, as the psalm goes on, a a lot of the description, though, seems to be um, uh, of something much bigger than just um, those two events. So I think we've got another place here where... um, we have words of encouragement spoken to God's people in the midst of a, a present situation, but also describing something that's coming in the far future, which I think goes to what Mike was saying, that you know, this is something, the, the culmination of human history with the, the return of Christ. So, you know, I, I, it's become my cop-out. It's both and. <laughs> Uh, I know, it's getting lame. I've got to come up with better answers than that. Yeah, that's a good question. In the midst of the year to make it known, so he's asking God to work, and then he's asking God to reveal it that it is God's work. Yeah, to make this work. So I've heard the report of your work in the midst of the years, revive that work in the years, midst of the years, make that work known. Um, and as we'll see, um, that understanding fits what comes forward because we, we'll, we're going to see a lot of the exodus in the psalm, lots of sort of allusions to things that happened in the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. So it's the way he's using the past to understand what God's going to do now. Just, you know, it's in a sense he's saying, just as you worked in the midst of your people, Israel, and delivering them from Egypt, work now in the midst of your people. But I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that what is it, because um, 
the second part of verse 2 there can, can be translated in the midst of the years um, oh good grief uh, I didn't write this down so I'm thinking it's in the midst of the years you can make it personal and uh, so it doesn't have to be it it can be he and revive can be live so in in the midst of the years make him live something like like that you can make it personal which um, one commentator in particular says is an allusion back to 2.4 where we have that the righteous shall live by his faith. So in this sense, um, if we take it that personal sense, it's as if the prophet's asking um, in the midst of these, these, these coming troubles, give us life. Um, it's uh, you could understand it if you're understanding it in the personal sense. You can understand the sense that he's gotten the message that life only comes from faithful trust in God. So I'm trusting. Give me life. So as my um, Old Testament and Hebrew professor used to say, Hebrew is fluid. <laughs> it's a fluid language. Yeah, pronouns, uh, yeah, yeah, it's flexible, (laughs) Um, which can be maddening, Um, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, in teaching Hebrew, it's like, I'm going to teach you a bunch of rules, and then you're going to learn all the ways they don't apply. (laughs) English does have that, too, you know, teach kids rules, and they're like, yeah, well, it doesn't work there. But, um, but either way, it's the, I think it's the sense, if we take it as a statement of going back to chapter 2, this sort of he's gotten this emphasis on life comes through faith, um, or if he's asking the Lord to revive his, his work, well, what's his work? It's his work of salvation. So I think either way, it's sort of, either way we tra- translate it, we're sort of getting to the same point. He's asking the sovereign God to bring life. To, to revive his saving work in the midst of these years. So, different pathways, but <laughs> coming to um, the same message. So even though it's fluid, it's, it's not taking us in two opposite directions. Right. It's, um, it, it's, it's different ways to, to get us going on the same path. So in the midst of the years, in in wrath, remember mercy. So again, I think this goes to um, uh, to um, Mike's suggestion that that in the middle of this coming destruction, um, this is uh, in in the midst of God unleashing His wrath. Um, this is the point where the the prophet wants him to remember mercy. All right, now as we look, so that's sort of the prologue. So I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. I do fear in the midst of the years, midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now we get into the substance uh, of the song. And it sort of breaks down into three parts. And the three parts are dictated um, by roughly by the pronouns. So in verses 3 through 7, 
we see he is the pronoun. So we have this description of the Lord's coming and the emphasis is on he. In verses 8 through 15, the pronoun is you. So, as we'll see, it's this description of the Lord's coming. And so in that first section, when it's He, it's sort of, you know, I'm giving a description of, of um, uh, you know, Anthony sitting in the back corner. You know, he's back there. He's got his hand on his chin looking in a, a thoughtful manner. And I could give a description. And then if he were to walk up here and I'd start talking directly to him, I'd address him as you. So, you know, now he's back there, he's he. As he comes closer, he becomes you. Um, and that's the sort of sense I think Habakkuk's giving us. He's giving us this description of the Lord's coming. And then suddenly in the middle of it, it switches from he to you. Um, it's that... Uh, He doesn't have to describe him as what he's doing over there. Now he's talking to God directly because God's present. And then the same with the eye. It sort of moves to this this description of what talking to God, saying what God's been doing, to talking about Habakkuk's response. So the structure of the song, I think, is, is driven by these different personal pronouns. So let's, um, just in the time we have left this morning, let's look at this first section. So the first section gives us this description of the Lord's coming. So starting in verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Salah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So where does the Lord, uh, in this description of the Lord's coming, where is the Lord coming from? Yeah, from earthly places, from from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So he's coming, uh, this description of the coming, it's not this, um, you know, uh, coming down from heaven kind of description. It's coming from very earthly locales. Um, and these two places are... Uh, Taman is, is roughly is sometimes used as Edom. Um, is, is, so if we're looking for a specific place, Taman is another um, uh, place associated with Edom. But it can also refer sort of more generally to from the south. Mount Paran um, designates an area between Sinai and Egypt. So putting Paran designates an area between Sinai and Egypt. So saying Mount Paran could be another way of saying Mount Sinai. But the emphasis is that the God is coming from physical locations. And in a sense, sort of, we can see this coming 
following the path of the Exodus, coming from Sinai, entering the land from Egypt. So it's this, he's seeing this appearance of God's glory roughly following the route of the Exodus. And we can think in terms of the exodus of God's glory shining from forth from the tabernacle, His glory leading them through the wilderness. You know, what would it be like? Well, we 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 read it from because we get it from Israel's perspective, but think of what it looked like to outsiders. You know, <laughs> what's that over there coming toward me? And it's sort of that picture that, that um, Habakkuk's putting us in. He's sort of seeing God's glorious um, appearance uh, coming. This presence of God rising up out of these earthly places and advancing. And the picture, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So it's, um, you know, you know this, this presence of God's glory. Again, it's, he's giving us a very sort of physical type of description as best as a human can try to describe the appearance of God in words. And it's filling the heavens. He can hear it. The earth is resounding with that presence. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. So you see this powerful physical presence of God coming. And notice the emphasis there on coming. So here he has a a song where he's describing the coming of God. And remember in verse 2, or chapter 2, in in verse 3, you know, God had instructed uh, Habakkuk, For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. It will not delay. So here we have this, we've had the promise that God's judgment's going to come, and now we see this description of God's physical coming. So, our question that we need to ask as the prophet describes the Lord coming in glory, is this something in, that's taken place in the past? Or is it something that's going to take place in the future? Yeah, we'll see. A lot of this language is picked up in the book of Revelation. Uh, A lot of the very specific um, uh, terms, um, the way that we see the mountains being leveled, um, the way, this is getting into next week, the way that we see what he describes of God's presence doing to the rivers and the sea, we see similar descriptions of God's wrath being poured poured out on rivers and sea in the book of Revelation. So there's a lot of future language in that that we see mirrored in the book of Revelation. I think both are true. The language is fluid. Yeah, and notice how it's our verbs. I mean, so if we're saying past or, or future, our verbs are all past tense. 
Um, and this is, is it, maybe I'm thinking of this just because I've been grading papers, but you know, I, I, I like tell students all the time, if you're talking about something in the past, use past tense. I'm so sick of people using present tense to talk about things in the past. It's driving me crazy. Sorry. Had to, had to vent there a little. I'm okay now. I gave them the example of, um, of uh, you know, uh, one of the, I, there's one example from, from grading at Duke, from the Divinity School. Somebody wrote this, you know, Luther is this, Luther's that. And I, you know, I wrote in the margin. I said I couldn't take any more. I put, Luther is doing, Luther is in heaven worshiping God. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> Body's not doing anything. He was <laughs> doing these things. But here Hebrew is, is giving us past tense verbs. The God came from Taman. His splendor covered the earth. The earth was full of his praise. So in this description of God's coming, he's using past tense. But again, to go to the fluid thing, um, Hebrew often used past tense to describe future events as a way of saying it's so sure, it's so certain it's going to happen, we can describe it as if it's already taken place, even though in physical time we haven't yet seen it happen. Um, so this is what, um, you know, it goes back to my cop-out of both. And we see that uh, we see a lot of... Um, Mirrors to or allusions to the Exodus. Uh, notice in verse 5 before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. You know, these are the things by which God delivered his people from the Egyptians. Um, we see these same terms appear in the book of Exodus describing what happened to the Egyptians in order that he would let, they would let God's people go. Um, here it seems so we, we start off he gives us a description of what it looked like um, this describing this brightness of God rays flashing from his hand um, there he veiled his power to the effects of God's coming so before him went pestilence plague followed at his heels he stood and measured the earth he looked and shook the nations the eternal mountains were scattered so these are sort of uh, physical effects of this presence of God coming so we've got allusions backwards to the exodus but then to look at it in a broader perspective we've got allusions forward to the book of Revelation Mary, you've got your hand how long have you had your hand up by the way? okay And the way these things are, are coupled, um, you know, God's exodus is the salvation of his people, his being merciful to his people of Israel. But we can also look at that then of, of God's uh, 
um, displaying his wrath against the Egyptians, against the Canaanites. So it's simultaneous uh, displaying of God's wrath and salvation. And we, you know, we want to pull these things apart and sort of put wrath over here on this shelf and salvation over here on this shelf and sort of keep this you know, aisle between them. And we see them as we look at how God's acted in the past. They're combined as we see how God's going to, uh, what the promises of how God's going to act in the future. They're combined. Um, we don't see the mercy without seeing the wrath. Mm-hmm. That's the. I mean, that's the expectation that the the whole chapter that. Yes, those are artificial uh, divisions. So that's another thing that some of these things that, uh, you know, about the um, ingrat or never mercy, if we're singing it, if, we're, if someone is repeating it and people are hearing it, it's written in a slightly different way because it, it's recounting history and also the future, but it's also sort of pleading that. Yeah, though I think you're, you're exactly right to, the, to think of this in a, a um, context of corporate worship. That this is going to be sung by the community uh, of the faithful. And that they are going to to recount this history, and again to think of the you know all the linkages to the Psalms. That's what we see in the Psalms so often. This poetic retelling of what God's done in the past, and their basis for trust, and what's going to happen in the future is what God's done in the past. And sometimes we see the psalmist sort of you know, uh, you know confused, uncertain. But, you know, he, he did this in the past. What are you going to do in the future? But it's the way, uh, the assurance uh, that God's working is by looking through human history and to see that hand. Yeah. Yeah, so he's building to assurance. And as he builds to it, uh, it's this, um, he, he recounts history to understand the future. Um, and the way he's mixing the two together, which again goes to my typical cop-out, it's both t- telling of God's glorious coming to Israel in the path, displaying both wrath and mercy, and trusting that God's going to do the same in the future. Um, and again, as, as Mike pointed out, that... Um, We'll talk about this next week. There's a lot of this language, a lot of these specific kinds of descriptors are picked up in the book of Revelation. So we see it being applied to um, to the, the culmination of history. And all that goes to say how very important historians are. And that's the point we're going to end on. <laughs> Um, no, but seriously, so that um, it is the point we're going to end on. But um, to look forward to next week. So we we have this physical description of God's glorious coming, and we see it far off, 
and we see its effects. You know, he gives us a, a physical description of what it sounded like, what he sees, and then we see the the the, the physical effects of it: pestilence, plague, mountains being shattered, uh, the land crumbling. And now, next week, when we pick up the psalm again, we'll see uh, the prophet um, standing there addressing God personally because the, the coming presence has now come into his midst. But let's close there for today. Gracious God, you have given us the words of your prophets uh, spoken to people in the past because they are words intended to direct us to our glorious future, the future of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, and our eternal life with Him in heaven. Lord God, it's sometimes um, difficult for us within time to put things on a scope that ultimately lies uh, beyond time and into eternity. It's difficult for us to understand how things that we keep so separate, things such as wrath and mercy, but in in you, these things are perfectly combined. Lord, give us understanding of these things, but ultimately um, direct us like you directed Habakkuk to um, use this truth about yourself to direct us toward praise and worship. And even now as we um, close this time of our study of your word, may you be uh, preparing our hearts to lift up our voices in response to your word to praise you for who you are and the glorious things that you've done for us in the past, the glorious ways you're working in our lives now through the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and for that glorious future that you've secured for us that you can speak of as happened in the past because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross, that his resurrection from the dead secures our resurrection, that we can say now that we're raised to newness of life, even though we still look forward to the resurrection and eternity of our physical bodies. Uh, Help us to praise you for who you are and what you've done, what you do, and what you will do for us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.